This is Linux Reality, episode 41, compiling from source. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. This is Linux Reality. My name is Chess Griffin, and this is episode 41. And uh, I'm going to do this episode and one more, episode 42. And uh, that's that's going to be it for this uh, for this year. I'm going to take the, the final month off, month of December. But then I'll be back strong again in uh, first week of January. So just kind of getting through the holidays and through the end of the year and all that good stuff. But like I said, this I do plan to have at least one, maybe two bonus episodes during the month of December. So, you know, don't please don't unsubscribe. Just stay subscribed. And, of course, the form and the website and all that kind of stuff is still going to be up, and I'll still be around. So it's just, you know, with, with everything going on during the holidays, I'm just going to going to take the weeks off because the weeks are really getting kind of kind of hectic right now. So... Uh, we've also got, I think, uh, a final decision on the uh, new logo. Uh, there's been some really awesome designs, a lot of creativity, and it's been so cool to see everyone kind of come together and work on this, uh, you know, all together. So uh, I, I'm going to, I, I, as of right now at least, I haven't made a totally final decision. I think I'm leaning one way, so I'm going to do that, and I will, you know, maybe announce it in the in the last episode and kind of talk about the folks who've been helping. It's just been a real, like I said, a real community effort, and it's been it's been really cool. So um, let's see. I also wanted to um, uh, mention I had talked, I had sort of touched on this in the last episode, last episode but I didn't really get into it. And this was this was something I had thought of, you know, heading into the into the end of the year here, uh, you know, the holiday season, you know, not you know whether or not, you know, whatever somebody celebrates or whatever, it's just kind of you know it's it's a good time of the year to sort of take stock and and think about everything and just kind of think about the year and look forward to next year. And one thing I wanted to do is I wanted to kind of come up with a or sort of a, an encourage a, a a Linux reality community um, fund drive, not for me or for the podcast, but for free and open source projects out there. And so what my thinking was is that uh, is to have folks uh, contribute to uh, any open source, any free open source project that they want. Of course, it's got to be a Linux-related free and open source project, uh, but anything at all. And for people who who donate at least fifteen dollars, because that's the price of the of the CD that I've been been selling. Uh, if if you will send me your PayPal invoice or something, just something showing that you made a, a donation to a particular project, I'll send you a free CD. Uh, so um, I just thought it would be a good way to encourage people to to make donations to to places other than to me and to the podcast. And so. Uh, you know, I also ask that you not make any donations to me for the month of, De- of December. Just feel free to put those dollars towards other projects. I really would like to encourage people to look around because there are so many great open source, uh, free and open source projects out there. You know, software that we all use. It can be anything that you want. Uh, I mean, it could it could be a, you know an organization like the EFF or the GNU Project or one of those folks, or it could be just a you know piece of software. I mean, it could be the KDE or GNOME or uh, if you you know if you use particular pieces of software. Uh, one one software that I've donated to is Vim, the editor. I just I really enjoy that. So you know, if it's a particular piece of software that you use a lot and that you like. Uh, you know, maybe check out their website and see if they've got a donation link, a PayPal thing or whatever, 
and just, you know, if you send them at least 15 bucks and just send me a copy of your invoice from PayPal or whatever, you know, obviously you can remove your any sensitive information like credit card information, that kind of thing. Just, just something just so I know that you sent them along. Uh, then I will, uh, and send me your, na- your email or your address. I will send you a free CD. Now I may need to limit this. I don't know. Hopefully this is going to be, um, very popular and I hope that's the case and I have no plans to cut it off. But you know, if, if a thousand people, uh, do this, <laughs> I don't know if I'll be able to send out a thousand CDs in the month of December. So, you know, barring that, um, I don't think that will happen. But you never, you never know. I'd be great if it did. So, um, and maybe what, maybe if it gets really popular, maybe what I can do is send you a, a link to download it or something like that. I don't know. We'll do something along those lines. But I, I just, I'm just trying to think of a way to encourage people to make a, you know, just a small donation, a few bucks to a, to any particular project that they like. So anyway, let me know what you think about that. Well, let's see here. What else? Um, I think that's about it for right now. I think that's all the wrap-up items. I, f- I feel like there's one or two other things, but I can't remember what they are, so I may have to save them and bring them in next week. But uh, for now, let's get to the main subject of this week's episode, and that's compiling from source. Okay, the idea of talking about compiling from source, I actually kind of mentioned it, I think in, excuse me, I think in last week's episode, uh, and somebody else has mentioned as well, is that uh, there are times when it's necessary to compile a piece of software from the source code. In you know, in this day and age, you know, a lot of these, a lot of distributions seem to seem to come with everything. I mean, SUSE and Fedora and Ubuntu, even um, there, the, you know, those Mandriva. I mean, there's those particular uh, distributions have repositories of software where you can get just about anything. And I, I remember mentioning this early on in the episode when I talked about installing Linux and using Linux, I think in one of the earlier, really early episodes, that the model of getting software in Linux is different than it is from, from Windows or Mac OS X. You generally don't go to the websites of the software developers and download the software from them. I mean, you can, but more often than not nowadays, at least for a lot of these distributions, is you use the repositories that your distribution has provided. And a repository is just a server. And it could be, you know, there could be mirrors, you know, around the world, of course, but it's just, but generally speaking, it's, it's a, it's a server where you download the packages that you want to install, you know, download the software. For example, let's say you want to use the Inkscape program. That's a program that's been, that's been talked about a lot in the Linux reality forums, talking about, you know, making this new logo. Well, uh, you know, you would have to, you would, all you do is, is you would use your package manager, in SUSE, you know, it'd be in YAST or using the using the new little um, uh, package tool that they have. Or in Fedora, it could be Yum. It, you know, in Debian or Ubuntu, it would be apt-get or something or Synaptic. You would basically install Inkscape through that particular software, and it would go fetch it from the server and download it and install it for you. And that works fine, I think, for 99.99% of the time. But occasionally, there's a need... Uh, to compile software from the source code that you actually download from the developer's website. So I thought I'd kind of take a high-level view of that, talk about it a little bit, and just kind of lay out some of the real basic groundwork. And this is basic stuff, but again, see, this is the kind of thing, at least for me, it may seem basic now, but but at the time when I was first starting out, this was just all foreign. It was it was like speaking a foreign language. I didn't I didn't just didn't get it. So that's what I want to do is just kind of talk about it and lay out some of the some of the basic groundwork and talk about some of the terminology. Um, so the, the place to start, of course, is is from the developer's website. So let's say there's an application uh, that you want to download, 
and you find the the main website for the for this piece of software. And sometimes it's hosted on SourceForge or someplace like that. Those are those are places that provide you know free hosting and things for 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 certain software projects. And what you're going to look for is you're going to look for a a uh, what's it, it's called a tarball, and it is a, a an an archived file of the source code. It's kind of like a zip file, sort of equivalent to that. It's it's called differently, but it's it's a uh, and it's usually it usually ends uh, with the extension dot tar dot gz. So that's dot tar dot gz. Not always, but most of the time. That's the format it's going to be. Now in Linux, there's a f- lots of different um, compression and archiving type type formats. I mean, like in terms of 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 Z of zip and gzip and uh, bzip or whatever. And I mean, there's a lot of different ones. So you may see it slightly different sometimes, but but more often than not, that's that's the case. Um, it could be .tar .bz2. That's another um, form of a tarball. That's just another. That's just a, you know another way it's been compressed. But what you're going to look for is you're going to want to look for that source code, that tarball, that that uh, that zip file, if you will, for lack of a better phrase. Uh, and you're going to want to download that to your to your local computer, of course. Now, once you've downloaded it, uh, the first thing that you'll need to do is to unpack it or to extract the tarball, as they say. Now, if you're using KDE or GNOME or some application like that, you know, I know that they have these archiver, you know, um, programs that, that may automatically launch when you download the tarball from your web browser. You, you know, when you download something, it'll off, often ask, you know, do you want to open this with a, a particular piece of software or do you want to save it to disk? I usually just save it to disk, but you can click, you know, open and then you'll want to look for, and it may already, it should already be set up to open the archive tool for whatever desktop you know, environment that you're using. And you can use the graphical archiving tool to extract it or to unpack it into a directory in your home directory. Just do this as your normal user. We're not root or anything like that. So if I'm downloading a, you know, application, and, and well, let me back up. Usually in the tarball, there will be the designation of the application name and then a dash and then the version number. Oftentimes, you'll see that. Uh, so, uh, for example, let's say I find a program, you know, application-0.1.tar.gz. And so that would be, you know, application, it's version 0.1, and it's a, it's a tar.gz tarball. So I would just download that into my home directory, and then, you know, using that graphical tool, I would extract it or unpack it. Now, if you don't want to use one of those graphical tools to unpack it, then you can use the command line. And so I want to try to bring in both here, you know, talk about the graphical tools and the and the command line. The command uh, to unpack a tarball in your home directory is as follows. You would enter tar space uh, dash x v z f space and then the name of the tarball. So it would be application dash 0.1.tar.gz. Now let me explain to you what those um, what those different flags are, if you will, or those different options in the uh, in the in the tar command. The X means to extract or untar the file. The Z means to uncompress the file. Tarring and compressing are two different things, and so a .tar.gz has been both tarred up and then compressed, and so the X untars the file 
the Z uncompresses the file. The V means verbose, so you see the printout on the screen, so you can see what's happening. And the F means file or file name, and meaning what follows next is the file name. So tar dash X Z V F, and it can be those letters can be in any order. Space, and then the name of the tarball that you just installed. And what will happen is it will then extract or, or unpack into a directory, usually. Sometimes the tarball is not, not tarred up very well, and it will just unpack a bunch of files, and it will be kind of messy in your home directory. But a good tarball, I mean, what, it's, what, it should be, what it should do is it should unpack into a directory in your home directory. And so you may see a, you may see a directory called application-0.1. You know, slash. I mean, that's that's sort of the directory that the file was was extracted to. Okay, and like I said, you can either use the graphical tool or use the command line to uh, to un unpack and un untar that file. Then what you want to do, and you'll need to do this next part in the terminal, is you want to you want to do cd and then the name of that directory that was just created when you extracted and uh, you know untarred. The, uh, the tarball. So you would type cd space application dash 0.1 and that will take you into that directory. Now that directory contains all the source code that's been extracted and unpacked. So you're, you know, you're, you're, you know, you're beginning, you're going to begin the compiling process here in a minute. Now let me pause right here. Before you compile anything, the most important thing, of course, is that you make sure you have all the right tools that's, that are needed to compile software. And there's a lot of them. I won't even mention all of them, but you know, it's usually it's like GCC and Make, and sometimes you even need the kernel source, depending. There's there's lots of other little libraries and system tools that are needed to compile software. So what the first thing I would do is make sure with your distribution is that you've in, that you've installed all those tools. And there's no one easy list. I mean, there probably is. I don't know them all, but it, but usually in the in the graphical package manager that you have, you'll see like, um, you know, programming tools or uh, development tools or something along those lines. And you'll want to install those those tools uh, prior to trying to compile anything. And if you don't have them installed, these next few steps will not work. And so you will be, you know, alerted to that fact. But you can kind of head off any problems by making sure that's the case. And usually if you do a full install of your of your distribution, all that stuff should be included. So, um, but anyway, that's just, you know, you'll want to check into that. And there maybe there's some how-tos or some FAQs for your distribution that say, you know, all the, all the tools that you need to compile are as follows and, and how to install them. Okay, so now you've got all, all the uh, tools installed and everything's ready to go to compile, and you've changed into that directory where the tarball was extracted. Okay, now a couple, a couple things you want to notice first is, is, to, is to do an ls or do an ls-la and take a look at the contents of this directory. And, and, and take a look at any text files. There's usually a file called readme, and a file called install, and I would definitely read them both. It's very important. Um, the install file, it may contain, and it will say this in the beginning, it may contain generic instructions. You'll see something like that. It will say, these are generic installation instructions, in which case I would read it just to make sure that's the case, but, but you, you know, there's usually, it will tell you the typical three-step process, which I'll explain in a minute. But other software has 
special, I mean, you know, customized installation instructions. So sometimes the install document will be customized. So that's why it's always a good idea to take a look at it, as well as the README, and just, you know, look at any other text files that there are in there, and it will tell you some of the things that you need to be aware of before compiling this particular package, this particular piece of software. So let's just say, though, it's the standard instructions or you don't see anything, you know, um, uh, necessary, uh, any special rules or any special things that you need to do. So you can, you know, quit out of reading those those files. And and let's do the first, the first step would be period forward slash or dot slash configure. Okay. Now, that right there is the first step, but I don't want to do that yet. Just do dot you know, dot forward slash configure space and then two dashes and help. Because what that does is it shows you the various options that are available during this configure stage. The three stages of compiling the piece of software is configure and then make and then make install. And the configure stage is sort of like well, it's, 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 it's configuring. It's setting up the options. It's getting things ready. It's, it's, um, it creates the documents and the stuff that's necessary to, to, to create the, the software. You know, uh, there may be options that you can choose to turn on or to, or to turn off. And those would be configure options. The next step, make, is the actual compilation or the actual compiling of the software. That's when you'll see that might take the longest. And then the make install is where it, that's the installation. That's where all the compiled bits are then moved into the right locations throughout your system, wherever they need to go. So the dot forward slash configure is the first step, but the dot forward slash configure space dash dash help shows you the options that are available. And if there are any options that you want to use, you would then pass them along as an option in the configure stage. Let me give you an example. Oftentimes, the, the sort of default directory is slash USR. And, and if you remember to the file system hierarchy episode, slash USR is where a lot of the system files and libraries and programs are located. But occasionally, you'll run into a piece of software that for some reason is set up weird and it may install someplace else, maybe in slash opt. And let's say you don't want that. Let's say you want to move it back to USR. Well, one of the options that's available in the configure stage is one that's called prefix. And you can, and that tells, that is an option where you can pass along what directory, where you want this software installed. And so one configure option would be dot forward slash configure space and then two dashes prefix equals slash USR. And what that's doing is it's telling the configure stage saying, hey, look, I don't want to install this in opt. I want to install it in USR instead. And there's a lot of other options like that. Another example is, I, well, I, I've been building a few packages for Slackware and actually building some Slack build scripts. Slackware uses uh, a script to help build and compile a Slackware package that can then be easily managed with the package manager. And you can uh, pass along the different configure options. And so anyway, I've been building a package for Audacity and for um, Graveman, uh, the CD burning application. And both of those has, have various configure options, like to enable support for something or not enable it. Like in Audacity, you can enable AUG support 
or you can disable AUG support. I don't know why you would disable it, but you, you know, it's an option. Same with Graveman. You can enable DVD burning or disable it. So when you do the dot forward slash configure space dash dash help, it gives you a list of all these options and what, what to pass along to enable it or to disable it. In Graveman, for example, you would do, I think this is right, I don't have it right in front of me, but it would be something like dot forward slash configure space dash dash uh, with space DVD RW tools, I think, or, you know, without DVD RW tools. Whatever that option is, that's not exactly right. But the point that I'm trying to make is that you can you can pass along at configure whether you want to turn on or turn off DVD burning support. And likewise with Audacity, there's support for all these other kind of, you know, you know, uh, flack and all this other stuff. I mean, there's a lot of different um, configure options that are available. And so the dot forward slash configure space dash dash help gives you all the options that you can choose from. Okay. That's, I probably beat that one to death. So that's the configure stage. That just kind of sets things up, turns on the options, turns off the options that you want, and gets things ready to go. Okay, the next step is make. Now, that's the step, as I said, that actually compiles the software. Now, both configure and make can be run as your normal user. And, and you know, that's the security-conscious way of doing it. Rather than doing these first two steps as root, if you've downloaded this tarball into your home directory and unpacked it in your home directory, you've obviously got read and write and execute permissions in your own home directory. And so you can do the configure and the make steps as your normal user. So again, the make is the, um, is the actual stage where the software is compiled. Now, I probably should have said this a minute ago, but let me just let me just back up one second. I forgot to mention, if for some reason in the configure stage you didn't install something that's needed, like GCC or some other tool, it will it will quit. The configure stage will not complete, and it will tell you. So anyway, all right, going back to make. So make is the second stage of this three-step process. This is the second step, and that's where the software is actually compiled. And it may it you know it just depends on how big the software is. Uh, and of course, how fast your computer is, how many, how much memory you have, and all that kind of stuff to, you know, to see how long it will take. Um, it usually doesn't take too long unless you're compiling KDE. <laughs> but, um, uh, but that's why people use Gen 2 because they want to compile KDE. No, I'm just kidding, just kidding. Anyway, um, uh, you know, most of the time it just takes a few minutes of me, 5, 10, 15 minutes, you know, depending on, again, how big the software is. So once that's done, the, the, the last step is the installation step, because now you've got all the bits and pieces compiled, all the binaries are made at, at this point. See, that's where it gets cool. You, f- you kind of see how this all works. I mean, the source code is just source code, but it's not, it's not actually binary stuff that can run, you know, on the computer. It's in, and so the compiling stage, the make stage, turns the source code into binaries. And so then the third step out of three is the make install. Just two words, make, space, install. And that does have to be run as root, and that actually moves all the, the binaries and all the documentation and the man pages and all whatever. It moves all the things that, that were made uh, into their places throughout the system. And so, for example, if it's a piece of software that has a configuration file in Etsy, it'll move it to the Etsy directory. And it will create the subdirectories all over the place if they're needed and all that kind of stuff. So that's why you need to be root, because it needs to do all that stuff throughout the entire file system. Now, um, 
if, if you ever want to uninstall, well, let me st- let me back up again. Um, at this point, once you've got it installed at, at make install, you should be done, and you should be able to run the application from the terminal. Or hopefully it will have created a, a menu entry in your KDE or GNOME or XFCE menus or whatever. Um, and if it doesn't, you know, just uh, you can look for it doing which. You know, you can look for the look for the program, uh, look for the command that is, and then just enter the command in a terminal or launch it from your menus and see if it works. And it should work fine. Um, assuming, you know, the, here's the thing: is assuming you have all the tools needed to build the software to begin with. And assuming you have all the dependencies, and I'll get to that in a second, then it works. I mean, it really does. Compiling software does work. Um, now, if you ever wanted to uninstall these binaries, you could go into this home directory and type make uninstall, and that should usually ins- uninstall all the stuff that was installed. Um, and uh, so that's, you know, when you install software using make install, it can be uninstalled. Now, one variation of this is rather than doing make install, you can use a program called check install. And you will have needed to previously download it and installed check install before you do anything else. But what check install does is it's good for Slackware, for Debian, and I think it creates Red Hat packages. But the, it tries to make a package for whatever system you're using that can then be installed and uninstalled using your package manager. So, for example, let's say you're using Ubuntu, and you download a piece of source code, and you go through these steps, and you install it. Well, that is source code that's been compiled and installed. That's not going to show up in your Synaptic package manager or any other package manager because they don't know about that. I mean, Synaptic and Yast and all those other graphical tools only know about packages you know, the, the special packages for whatever distribution, like if it's an RPM for Fedora or SUSE or a deb file for Debian, it's not going to know about the um, compiled sort of native stuff that's been installed behind the scenes. So if you want to make a native package that can be tracked and, and then in, uninstalled or maybe even upgraded perhaps from the package manager, then you're going to need to create a package rather than just installing it from source. So you would still do the configure and the make stage, but check install replaces the third stage. Instead of typing make install, you would type check install, all one word. And then it goes through a little wizard, um, and it asks you how to create these packages. Now, And then it will create a package. It will create a deb file, or it will create an RPM, or it will create a Slackware uh, TGZ file. And... Um, then you can install it using your package manager. Now, check install works pretty well. It's not perfect by any means. It does have some cleanup issues. It tends to leave some some little bits and pieces scattered around and stuff, but it works pretty well. And it's it's I mean, especially for Slackware, that's where I use it. I have never actually used it on any of the other systems that I t- mentioned, but I've heard of a lot of other people using it on Debian and enjoying it. But I've used it on Slackware quite a bit, and it works pretty well. It's not perfect, but it works pretty well. And it does create a package that is that then can be installed and uninstalled with the package manager. So that's that's pretty cool. So that is that is an option if you want to. That's not required. Check install is certainly not required. And some people say you shouldn't use it, but you can use it if you want. You know, try it out, or just do the traditional make install as the third stage. So either one of those are, are options. Now, um, 
Installing from source, of course, just installs the one software. It doesn't install any packages that it depends on. Um, so if there are dependencies out there, you need to make sure that those are installed, you know, depending on what they are, they need to be installed prior to installing uh, the software that you're trying to install. Again, here's another example with Audacity. You know, I want to, of course, build in AUG support. So the AUG stuff needs to be there on the system before I build Audacity. If my um, if my distribution didn't come with the with the AUG libraries, I would want to make sure I downloaded and installed those and compiled and installed those first. So when I later did Audacity, it found them. Now, of course, with Slackware, that stuff all that was already that was already there, so I didn't have to worry about AUG. But that's just the the point I'm trying to make is that you need to make sure those dependencies are are satisfied. Well, speaking of Audacity, let me use another example uh, with Audacity with the package that I've been working on and the Slack build that I've been working on. Uh, Audacity requires a different widget set. It doesn't use Qt or GTK. It uses something called WXGTK. And so it needed the WXGTK library installed before before Audacity will work. So I had to create a separate Slackware package and Slack build script for WXGTK, get that working and installed before doing Audacity. So and the way to find these dependencies is to look at the developer's website. Nine times out of ten, they will tell you. Another one I'm working on is Graveman, and Graveman clearly says on their website all the different stuff that needs to be installed, like, you know, Libmad and the DVD stuff and the make ISOFS or, you know, all the different CD burning tools, the you know, the command line tools. It says you need to have all of this stuff installed before Graveman will work. Uh, so you'll need to take a look at that. You can use a, a there's a command called LDD. And uh, if you just type LDD and then the, I think, and then I think the way it works is you type LDD and then the command of the program that you're that you've built, it will tell you about missing dependencies. Now, not every dependency has to be installed beforehand. I mean, it's just the ones that 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 sort of link up and use pieces of some software will just kind of take advantage of of additional software if it's there. Uh, so. You know, none of this is, is hard and fast rules. Everything is slightly different depending on the software. But generally speaking, that's what you'll want to do. You know, most most of the time, I would advise trying to track down and, and get the dependencies going before you install your final application. And so that's why, you know, sometimes people say, well, gosh, the, you know, distributions that have dependency checking are far superior, like Debian or Ubuntu or Yast or, I mean, SUSE or Fedora and stuff. And that's, you know, well, that's a debate for another day, but, um, you know, whether or not dependency checking, you know, automatic dependency checking is a good thing or not a good thing, it just, it depends on the person, I think. I mean, it's, there's, again, just like with everything, it's not a one-size-fits-all uh, kind of kind of situation. So, um, but that's, you know, that's kind of an overview of compiling from source. Again, so in a nutshell, the three steps are dot forward slash configure, make, and then make install. Those are the traditional three steps for compiling uh, software, and it, and it does work. Assuming you have all the development tools built in, and assuming you've got the dependencies, you know, satisfied, you know, beforehand, then the package uh, should compile and install, and you can use check install optionally if you wish, or just do make install, and you know, don't delete that directory that you compiled in because it has them. 
You can go in there and type make clean if you want after you've installed it just to kind of clean it up. But the make file that's in there is necessary to uninstall the, 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 um, the application later on. So if you do make install and then later on you want, you want to uninstall it and you, you, you know, you can type make uninstall and it will install it as long as that make file, which is one of the files that's in that source directory, is still there. So you don't want to delete that. Um, so I think, I think that's about it. Um, trying to think if there's been anything else, but, uh, again, that's pretty high level. I'll put some links to some tutorials and some how to's and all that good stuff. And hopefully, you know, that should at least get you started. Now this is, it's different. It's a different for compiling the kernel. That's a different process entirely. This is just compiling software and, you know, start slow, start with an easy one. Oh, and the last thing I guess I should say though, is that not every piece of software requires those three steps. Occasionally, you'll, you'll run into some that just say all you need to do is type make and make install. There's no configure stage. Or, you know, I don't know. I've seen some, I think, where you just type make install, I believe. I don't remember. But, you know, that's why you need to read the install and the readme files in the source code directory just to make sure that, you know, the different steps you need to take. So, all right, with that, I think we're going to get to a listener tip. To start, press any key. Where's the any key? I see Esk, Kataral, and Pigup. There doesn't seem to be any any key. Hi, Chess. Brother Red here. In an earlier podcast, you said that KDE and GNOME do not have do not add applications to the menu. This is true, at least in KDE. I do not run GNOME. I also noticed that not only will KDE not add things to the menu, but Sometimes when it does, it does so without any icons for the programs added. Strangely, I still like KDE. Thankfully, if you, if you do not have icons or do not like the ones that are being used, you can change them. I, for instance, have a Euchre card game that does not have an icon. So I took a screenshot of Lufin and Scat for KDE just at the point where all the card, cards are fanned out. I forgot how I edited it exactly, and it would take too long to explain. But once you have a picture that you want to use, you right-click on the menu, which, if you are in your user, will ask for your root password. Then click Add to Application. That will ask you where to find the executable. It usually is in the slash USR slash bin directory, or something like that. Then, from there, if you do not have a installed icon for the program, you can click the icon box thing that will bring up a list of available icons. From there, you can click the option to browse a custom directory. I actually have a folder full of icons and other project pictures that I have made. I do have a question, though, since it seems that this Euchre game does not have an icon, and I am saying that one should hack another picture to make one, I am wondering where do I submit the picture that I have made, or icon, I should say. I guess that, I guess I just contact the developer, but anyway, that is my listener tip. Message for you, son. All right, well, got some uh, feedback here I wanted to get to. Um, <clears> the <throat> first one is from John. 
John says, hey, Chess, I've been working with Linux servers for a few years now, and I am, and am doing SSH all the time. I guess I never really took the time to look into other ways of doing things, but was frustrated at the entire login process each time. Thank you so much for telling us all about the public-private key options, as well as all the other hints you gave in this week's podcast about SSH. I'm sure that that will help me out a great bit from now on. That's from John. Well, great, John. Yeah, I'm glad you enjoyed that. SSH does have a lot to it, and, and there were a lot of other things I didn't really get to, but uh, it's uh, it's really a worthwhile tool tool to get to know. Uh, I just I just love SSH. I just you know I think it's fantastic. It's definitely something I use literally every single day. Here's something from Scott. Scott says, "Hi, Chess. Just a quick note to add my feedback to your growing pile of accolades." I've only been using Linux now for about three months, having switched due to the WGA efforts of Microsoft. At the time, I had two PCs and only one XP license, so the, so the time seemed right to check out how the Linux desktop had progressed. I had a brief experience with Red Hat back in 2001 and was a bit baffled by it. This time, I, this time around, I tried Kubuntu, then Ubuntu, and began to realize that many of the difficulties I encountered back then are simply not an issue anymore, package management in particular. It's been difficult for me to settle on a particular distro, as there are just so many great ones out there to try. I've been on eLive most recently. I have a soft spot for eye candy, and I'm reading up on Gen 2 in preparation for my next experiment. I'm attracted to the Emerge process and the idea of optimizing the install for my specific hardware. Uh, at any rate, your podcast has really helped me get a handle on some fundamentals. Samba and Cups come to mind, and I'm getting more comfortable working from the command line. Keep up the great work. I hope you're I hope you're able to continue for many more moons. Sincerely, Scott. Uh, P.S. Here's another great open source podcast for other podcast junkies to try out if they haven't already. And it's uh it's a, just a link. It's sourcetrunk.com. Sourcetrunk.com. So, thanks, Scott. I haven't uh, listened to that podcast yet, but I will definitely put that uh, on my list. So, and thanks for all the kind words. I do I do really appreciate that, and I'm glad that. Uh, that this podcast has helped you, um, you know, rediscover Linux. Things are definitely different than they than they were in 2001. Much much easier, I think. And uh, uh, so I'm glad that you know you're working on Kubuntu and Ubuntu, and and you're going to give Gen 2 a shot. So uh, 2000. Well, let's see. Last time I did Gen 2 was probably I don't know 2002, 2003, somewhere in that range. And I mean, Gen 2 is great. You know, I mean, I think it's very very cool. I can I can totally understand why people get into it. It's just for me, it just seems like it's you know it's a lot of work, but anyway, it's it is very cool. I think Gen 2 is a very cool distribution. Um, okay, and then the last one here I'm going to read is from Jose. Jose actually sent me a long email, so I'm not going to read everything, but um, but let me just get you some of it. I just wanted to let's see. Hey Chess, uh, first of all, I would like to let you know that your show is working. By that I mean you are getting avid Windows users to try Linux. I am a Windows systems administrator. I work very little with Linux since we have Linux system admins at my place of business. The boss told the Windows admins that we still now have to start supporting Linux, and in turn, we would have to work closer with the Linux admins. That is when I found your podcast, and I have drank it like water. I started listening on October 17th and have finished all the episodes and have learned a lot. I just finished listening to episode 38 where a listener tip on Gparted Live CD was read. This user, like yourself, also did not know if this Live CD worked on an NTFS partition. Well, I'm here to answer that question. I think you will like the answer. <laughs> anyway, and then he goes on to explain, tell a story about Gparted, and it sounds like it worked just fine on NTFS. And then he continues, I would like to tell you thank you for your show on SSH. I really got a lot of great security tips from it. I especially like the show notes you put up. Since your 30 to 45-minute shows usually takes me an hour or two to finish because I have to stop it, rewind, go back since I missed a command. Trying to type as you are speaking is very hard. <laughs> 
Um, and uh, then he goes on to say, uh, let me tell you a little bit about me. Like I started before, I was I am a system uh, Windows system administrator for six years. I've been using Windows since 98. And he goes on to talk about Linux, how he tried it one time before and it didn't work. Um, but since October, I've used PC Linux, Fedora Core 5, Ubuntu, Zubuntu, Kubuntu, SUSE 10.1, Backtrack. <laughs> now, I was thinking of actually sending you a voice message, but I think it would not be a listener comment. Uh, I'm selling some stuff on eBay, and when that money comes through, I plan to make a donation to your show for all the great work you are doing. You are truly making a difference, and it has all to do with your attitude. If you decide for some odd reason you decide to read this, feel free to edit this email as you see fit. That's from Jose. Well, Jose, that's a really great email, and it's so um, wonderful to hear from Windows sysadmins. I mean, that's, you know, that is just really cool. And I get a lot of emails from, from Windows folks, believe it or not. I mean, system administrators who, uh, you know, I think are more and more finding they're having to work with Linux, you know, in a mixed environment. And, you know, even though this podcast has, has sort of always been geared towards the home user and the desktop user, you know, we do get into things, networking things from time to time that that um, that apply across the board. So I'm glad to hear that it's helping people out. And Jose, that's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really glad to hear that you've, that you're working with Linux again and that you're enjoying it. And that's, uh, awfully nice of you to consider me for, for a donation. Like I said, I mean, feel free to, you know, I, I would encourage you to, if it's, if it's in the month of December, as I said, don't send me any donations in December. Uh, send them to, uh, you know, free and open source projects. You can do it on, on behalf of, you know, the Linux Reality Podcast if you want or Linux Reality listeners or something like that. That, that would be cool. And, um, and, you know, do that and I'll send you a, a CD. So, um, I, in fact, I think I've got one more thought on that that I'll talk about here in just a second. So, but back to Jose, I really thank you for your email. Uh, it's a very great email and, and, um, I'm glad that you're enjoying Linux again. So, I think that's it for this week, everyone. And, uh, like I said, this is the, uh, this is the uh, second to last episode. I've got one more coming up, but, um, uh, let's see. I think for this one, it's about time to wrap it up. Okay, well, like I said, I think that's going to do it for this week, and uh, we'll be back next week for one more before our holiday break. And about those donation things, let me know, um, even if you don't want a CD or even if you send less than $15 or whatever, just let me know who you've contributed something to, because what what I think I might do is start a page over at the Linux Reality website and just kind of enlist the projects that Linux Reality listeners have donated to. I mean, I won't put names or amounts or anything like that. Just, just the projects. Um, I just think it would be cool to have a page where we can see, wow, you know, we as a community have contributed to all these different projects. I just think that would be really neat to see. So, um, let me know, you know, if there's anything like that that you do. And even if, like I say, even if you don't want the CD or just do it on your own anyway, just let me know and I'll put it on the, on the page. And I just think that'd be really cool. So. All right, everybody. Uh, like I said, uh, I think this is a uh, second to last episode. I'll be back next week. Uh, feel free to send me any feedback at linuxreality at gmail.com, or you can call the listener hotline or use the ODO web-based service. Links to all that and information is on the uh, homepage. And keep an eye on the homepage because there might be a new logo up here very soon. So I think that's it. And until next time, I hope you all have a great week. This has been Episode 41 of Linux Reality. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye.